0: I invite you to take your copies of the scriptures with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 40, that is the last chapter of the book of Exodus, Lord willing. Two more sermons this morning and then one more next Sunday and we'll finish out the book of Exodus after a little over two years in that book. Also, before we begin... A little correction to something I said earlier. I talked about, I think, 50 days uh, after Christ's resurrection, his ascension. It was actually 40 days, right? So just make that correction. 50 days is Pentecost. That's still coming up. But 40 days after his resurrection, his ascension. Would you stand with me as we uh, read God's word this morning? I'm going to read Exodus 40, verses 1 through 33. After I read that, I will say, This is the word of the Lord. And together we will say, Thanks be to God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "On the first day of the month of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set its, up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also... And put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames, and put in its poles and raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses he took the testimony and put in it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set set the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses." And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses Moses finished the work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, Grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a year since the Lord brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. And it's been nine months since the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. They had been delivered by God. They had been devoted to God. But now they were waiting. Waiting. Waiting for the promise of the Lord to dwell with His And that's one thing that I think we all share in common. We all love to wait, don't we? How much of our life do we spend waiting? Waiting at the doctor's office. Waiting at the stoplight. Our world, our culture has found ways to make us wait more and more and more. Waiting is not easy. And waiting wasn't easy for the Israelites either. At times... Doubt and uncertainty crept into their minds. Sometimes they were afraid. Sometimes they were impatient. Sometimes they were filled with awe and wonder. Sometimes they were downright sinful and rebellious. But God had made a promise to dwell among them. Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. While at times it might have been challenged and seemingly almost abandoned, the promise had been made by the Lord. Even when the people broke the covenant, even when they had done all that they could to destroy their relationship with God, He had come to them and He had renewed the covenant and He had restored them to right relationship with Him. But now they were waiting, obediently waiting, but waiting nonetheless. Would God show up? Would God make good on his promises? Would his grace, mercy, and love shine upon them once more? They were not going to make it through the wilderness without him. And I wonder if in our times of waiting, if we ever ask ourselves the same questions. Is God going to show up? Is he going to make good on his promises? Are we going to make it through the wilderness? And we know the answer, not without him. They had done what the Lord had commanded them. They had made all of these pieces and parts of the tabernacle, all the furniture, the paraphernalia that God had told them to make to set up this tent where God was to dwell among them. They had brought it to Moses. Moses had inspected all of their work. He had accepted their work, but there was still more to do. The final part did not depend upon the people, it depended upon the servant of God, the one whom Yahweh had chosen, the one that he had called from in the midst of that burning bush to lead his people out of the land of Egypt, the one who was to stand before Pharaoh, and say, thus says the Lord as the spokesman for God, the one who had brought the people through the Red Sea, had led them to the mountain of God, had received the law on the mountain from Yahweh, and had the skin of his face shine because of the glory of God he experienced. Now Moses had more to do. But all that Moses had to do, interestingly enough, did not point to the greatness of Moses. It all points to the greatness of God. What Moses did was not for his own glory or to puff up his own eagle or to make himself look good. What he did, he did to point to the glories and to the goodness of our God. This is where many in our day fall. They are enamored by the perceived greatness of man. And how often, because man is so puffed up, because we elevate man, that man sometimes tries to sinfully eclipse the glory of God. May it never be, but too often it is the case even in churches. What was going on was going to make a difference in the life of the Israelites. What was it? What was it that was going to make a difference in the life of Moses? What was it that was going to make a difference in the life of the Israelites? And what is it that is going to make a difference in your life and in my life? It's knowing who God is. It's focusing on Him. This is where oftentimes we even go wrong with our own Bibles. The Bible is not a self-help book to make you get in touch with yourself so that you can feel better about yourself. It is about the greatness and the magnificence of a transcendent God who descends to his people to rescue, save, and help those who could never help themselves. What is the greatest thing that I can do for you this morning and any morning, the greatest thing that I could do for you, is to give you more truth about God to repeat to re- repeat the precious truths about God to remind you of the great truths about God so that your hearts and minds and souls soar to the heights of joy, glory and peace. And so what actions does Moses take? And what do these actions teach us about God? Three truths I want us to look at this morning. You can follow along in your outline if that's helpful. But three truths. Moses assembled the tabernacle because our God is orderly. Moses assembled the tabernacle because our God is orderly. This truth about God highlights a great dichotomy in our world. As we observe the world, as we have interactions with the world, as we live in this world, as we experience the effects of this fallen and sinful and broken world, we are left with a sense of disarray. Everything is being torn apart. Everything is breaking down. Everything seems to go from bad to worse. The chaos and the confusion all around us do not seem to be getting any better, only worse. The disjointed nature of life in our world appears to be breeding mayhem, madness, and turmoil that are not only constant, they are constantly increasing. As if the world only ever wants to put people on edge, to be in a state of panic, to be agitated in their hearts and minds, to spin them around and around so they don't know they're right from their left, they're up from their down, to be those who are, here's a word, discombobulated. The more confused the world says, the better. But this is is the antithesis. It is the exact opposite of who God is. Our God is a God of peace, clear thinking, calm hearts, of content people. So our God is a God of order. Where there is unrest, chaos, disorder, division, confusion, and agitation, there is the God of this world. Where there is rest, order, clarity, truth, unity, and peace, there is the God of the universe. Is that something to think about in your own life this morning? Are you ever agitated? Do you ever feel on edge? Is there unrest in your soul? Why might that be the case? Could it be that you're listening more to what the world says than to who God is? (laughs) Could it be that all that the world is saying is having more of an effect upon you than what God says through his word? Now the Israelites have brought all the pieces of the tabernacle to Moses, and it is his responsibility to erect or assemble the tabernacle. This is to be the place where the presence of God is to dwell among this people. And it wasn't just an important place. It was to be the place of all places among the people and in the world, a, pe- a place where people could know and experience the closeness of their Lord. A place where He could be worshipped. Where atonement could be made for people's sins. Moses now sets up the tabernacle and arranges everything exactly how God wants it to be arranged. This is a place where heaven was to meet earth. And so now we are told the specifics about how Moses arranges everything. While before, it seems if you go back in Exodus, as the Lord instructs Moses all the things that are to be made, it's about their dimensions, it's about their functions. Now it seems the emphasis is more on how to arrange them within the tabernacle, where everything is placed. Starting from the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, there it is the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of Testimony. It was to be placed there and shielded from the sight of the priests with a large veil or curtain. And so we move out from there to the holy place where you have the table of the bread of the presence on the north side. You have the lampstand on the south side of that room. And then you have the altar of incense which was placed before the Ark of the Covenant just outside the veil. So you have the Ark of the Covenant... You have the veil, and then you have this altar of incense just on the other side of the veil before the Ark of the Covenant. Then you move outside of the tent itself into the courtyard. There you have the bronze altar that was for the making of sacrifices, for burnt offerings. And between that altar and the opening of the tent of meeting, the tent of the tabernacle, you have this bronze basin or Labor, as some translations say, where the priests were to wash. With this emphasis on how everything is to be arranged, with everything's location and proper placement within in the tabernacle, it says something to the orderly and proper way that Yahweh is to be worshipped. God does not dwell among his people when chaos and disorder are reigning, And even when we get to the New Testament, nothing changes. Paul instructs the Corinthians about how they were to worship him when he says this in 1 Corinthians 14 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. Why is this the case? Because our worship of the Lord is a reflection of who the Lord is. We cannot lie about the Lord and think that he will be honored by our worship. Order is good, it is necessary, it is appropriate, it is even for our benefit, and it serves as a testimony to the world that is drowning in confusion and disorder and dysfunction, saying, our God is a God of order and peace. That's the kind of God that we need in our worship, and that's the kind of God our world needs in the midst of their disarray. Number two, Moses anointed the tabernacle and the priests because our God is holy Second, Moses anointed the tabernacle and the priests because our God is holy. So next, Moses takes the anointing oil and he begins anointing the tabernacle and everything that is in it. And as everything is anointed, it becomes holy. That is, it is set apart for the Lord. It is dedicated to Him for use in worshiping Him. The tent and all that is in it are no longer ordinary or common items, They are special and they are purified for the Lord. Even the bronze altar used for burnt offerings was anointed. And it says it becomes most holy. Do you see that there at the end of verse 10? So that the altar may become most holy. That is a double word in the Hebrew. To say it very literally, it becomes holy, holy. Or really holy. Why this emphasis? Why why does it say that this altar, this bronze altar for the burnt offerings, why does it become most holy? Well, let's think about it for a moment. This is where the sacrifices were to be made to make atonement for the people's sin. In essence, this is where the people's sins would have come into contact with the holy tabernacle. It was a place where the people's sins would be dealt with within the tabernacle complex. And could it be that this was a reminder that these sin offerings would not and could not taint or stain or infect the holy dwelling place of God? The item that we think could potentially be overcome with the stain of sin, even that item is holy and holy, holy, most holy. This is the place where the Sin of the people would come into contact with the holy dwelling place of God. Which was going to win? Which was going to be overcome? Our sins were not going to prevail over the holiness of God's. No, God's holiness is going to prevail over our sins. His holiness is more powerful and more potent than our sin. While everything we touch is tainted by our sin, we cannot and will not taint him. That is why Jesus can reach out and touch the lepers. Because his holiness and his righteousness is making people clean. He is not overcome by our disease. His holiness and his righteousness are more contagious than our sinfulness. And not only are the inanimate objects sanctified, but Aaron and his sons are also sanctified. They are anointed and consecrated in order to serve the Lord. And notice the progression in their consecration. First, they participate in ritual washing. This represents a spiritual cleansing. They were made clean. And then Aaron, the high priest, is clothed with holy garments while his sons put on coats or tunics. This is perhaps a reminder that Aaron and his sons are not clothed with the holiness of their own. They are clothed with a borrowed holiness. It is a holiness of the Lord which makes them holy. And these priests are consecrated to serve as a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. They would continue to serve the Lord, represent the Lord before the people, practice all the instructions necessary for worship of the Lord so that the Lord would be upheld as holy in the eyes of the people. And their consecration was to be a testimony to how the people were to live their lives. This is one of the greatest needs in the church today. We need consecrated people. We need holy people. With the consecration Moses performed, it meant that the objects and these people were no longer ordinary objects, and the priests were no longer ordinary or private people Does that scare you? We might like to think I'm my own person. Not if you belong to Jesus. You are his. When we are consecrated, when we are made holy to be his people, We don't get to claim, I'm my own person, I'm a private person, and guess what? This is not a picture of heaven. A bunch of private people worshiping God privately, the picture of heaven is a bunch of public people worshiping Jesus publicly, out there, for everyone to see. It's not according to my own way, or how I want to worship God, it's about His way and worshiping Him the way that He deserves to be worshipped. We need consecrated, holy people In the church, who desire holiness, who pursue holiness, who say we must always be used and act with reference to God and to His purposes. Is that what you say about your life? That I must always be used for God and for His purposes, that I must always act in reference to God and to His purposes. How about very tangibly when you walk into the grocery store this week? Lord, I don't know how, but even this action of going into the grocery store, I want to be used and act with reference to you and for your purposes. In everything that we do, we are to glorify the Lord. So why not even the mundane things that we do? Why not even the common things that we do? We ask ourselves, am I doing this in reference to God? Am I being used by Him in this moment for His glory and for His purposes and His purposes alone? And then we will, be, we will begin to understand what it means to pursue holiness and to be consecrated people for the Lord. No one, no Christian, is exempt from being holy and pursuing holiness. Nope, doesn't apply to me. That's for super Christians. Holiness. Holiness. Is for every Christian. That's what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? What's the purpose of that? Why has God done that in our lives? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has made you holy and gives you the affections to pursue holiness so that you may proclaim how great Jesus is and what Jesus has done in your life to bring you out of your darkness and out of your sin and out of your deadness and into his marvelous, living, glorious light. And there's no longer a specific, exclusive group of people who are called priests What does it say here in 1 Peter 2? All Christians, all believers are priests before the Lord. Is the life you are living consecrated to the Lord? Is it done according to God's agenda as set forth in His Word? Is that your life? Number three. Moses adhered To the commands of God because our God is sovereign. I kept the alliteration of A's going. So Moses adhered. If you want to change that, obeyed. Moses obeyed the commands of God because our God is sovereign. One of the repeating features that's difficult to miss in verses 16 through 33 is Moses' obedience. Eight times we are told how Moses did exactly what the Lord had commanded him. So you can see this here in Exodus 40, verse 16, verse 19, verse 21, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29, and verse 32. If we take a little closer look, I propose that the first reference in verse 16 serves as a summary of Moses' obedience, followed by seven repetitions of, as the Lord commanded Moses exact wording 7 times these 7 times tells us Moses complete devotion and diligence in obeying the Lord in assembling the tabernacle precisely how God wanted it assembled and that is how it should be for the sovereign Lord the one who rules over everyone and everything The one who is in control of everything? Why did Moses obey the commands of the Lord? Why do you obey the commands of the Lord? It's because we know him to be our sovereign Lord. That is, he's ruling and reigning He is the one who's worthy of all of our allegiance and devotion, the one who demands our obedience. What is it that motivates our obedience? What's the engine that causes us to want to obey and long to obey and desire to obey God? Well, it should be God's love? Yes. It should be God's mercy and grace? Yes. But let us also say it should be God's sovereignty. Forbid it that we should disobey our king who rules over us. Our obedience is a testimony to his sovereignty. If our Lord and God is sovereign, then we should serve Him and worship Him and Him alone. Let us not waver between two opinions. Let us not have divided hearts. Let our total obedience to Him declare our God reigns. Let us take a moment here and meditate on this last sentence that says this. So Moses... Finished the work. I think it's an important sentence in the whole text of Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, let's go on a little journey, shall we, in our closing moments. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 33 Oh, I'm sorry, verse 31. Genesis 1, 31. We must listen closely to what God's word says. I think you will hear it. Genesis 1, 31 and following. I'm going to go into chapter 2. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay? Let's go now to Exodus 39 for a moment. Exodus 39. Verses 32 and 43. Exodus 39, 32 and 43. Exodus 39, 32, 43. And then I'm going to read 40, 33. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them, and then chapter 40, verse 33, so Moses finished the work. And now, 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. Verse 51, King Solomon is charged with building the temple. This is what it says when he had done that. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought up or brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the vessels and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. A couple more. Ezra, chapter 6, verse 15. Do you hear a pattern yet? Ezra 6, 15. The people of Israel had gone into exile. Now they've come back to the land the temple was destroyed and so they had to rebuild the temple this is what it says in Ezra 6:15 and this house was finished on the 3rd day of the month of Adar in the 6th year of the reign of Darius the king so let's put all that together for a moment why did i do all this <laughs> what happens a creation, God finishes His work. Why does He do that? So He can have fellowship and communion with His creation, with the people that He created. Exodus thirty-nine and forty, the tabernacle is finished and complete. And why is it finished and complete? So that God can commune and have fellowship with His people, and they with His presence. The temple in 1 Kings 7 is finished by Solomon. And why does that happen? So God can commune and have fellowship and dwell among his people. Ezra 6.15, the temple is finished. Why? Because the people hope and pray that they can again commune and have fellowship with God. That he might dwell among them. And now go to John chapter 19. Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so he put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is Finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is happening? Why does Jesus say those words? Because he had finished the work that God had given him to do. He had finished. The work of redemption. He had finished the work of salvation. He had paid the price that was needed to save sinners. From their sins, he had finished the work of the new creation that God had so appointed for him to do so that sinners might receive the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins. And he did it all so that people could again commune and have fellowship with God. And think about it. Jesus said earlier in John, This temple you will destroy. But three days later, what? I will raise it up again. This is what was happening at this point. The people were disassembling the temple of God. They were destroying the tabernacle of God, the place where God's glory dwelt in bodily form. And Jesus said, you are not taking God away from these people. You are giving God to these people. Through his sacrifice... Jesus opened a new and living way where we can commune and have fellowship with God forever. For God to dwell among his people forever. Jesus finished the work so that we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. It's not our work. It's not what we have done what God did so that we can hold this confession of our hope without wavering. The world wants us to waver. The world wants us to doubt. The world wants us to second guess. The world wants us to be confused. The world wants us to be divided. The world wants us to be disunified. The world wants to rip us apart. But Jesus Christ died to bring us together and to give us God and finish the work that needed to be done so that we can hold this confession of hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. You need a faithful God? Jesus finished the work. You need a faithful God. Jesus redeemed His people. You need a faithful God. He has now given us the indwelling of His Spirit, which is the guarantee of our salvation until that day when we will dwell again with Him in glory in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever so that He is praised. Amen. Father, the word of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is a stumbling block to those who would reject it, deny it. But to us who are being saved, it is the very wisdom of God. Father, we need an orderly God. We need a holy God. We need a sovereign God. We need a God who has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners, and to finish the work that we could never finish ourselves. We need a better Moses. We need a perfect mediator. We need a constant intercessor. And that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here today who lives in constant confusion, and agitation, and unrest in this world. I pray that today you would open their eyes, that they might come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but in the name of Christ and Christ Jesus alone. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have been more agitated by this world than finding our peace in you. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have not been the consecrated people that you have called us to be and have done things for our own purposes and our own ways rather than for your purposes and your ways. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have been disobedient and failed to hold you up as the sovereign Lord of the universe to a watching world. But let us commit ourselves to these again. Let us commit ourselves to finding peace that comes from you alone. Let us commit ourselves to pursuing holiness with our whole hearts. And let us commit ourselves to bow before your sovereignty and pledge again our allegiance to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.